This is Recovery Revolution Live. The episode you're about to listen to is live and unedited. If you'd like to join us on the live stream, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube. Facebook.com slash Recovery Revolution 100 or search Recovery Revolution Live on YouTube. And I'm just now realizing that I don't have Carl's fun, exciting, upbeat intro music. So I'm going to play this music instead. It's a little, it's a little more mellow than what we're used to. Carl usually plays that fun, dancing music, but <laughs> here we are with some nice mellow music. And for everybody that's watching, it does look a little bit different. We have uh, a guest host tonight, Miss Amanda. And uh, Carl is stuck at work, and Ashley is on an airplane, so neither one of them were available tonight, (laughs) but the show must go on. So here we are. And tonight, our guest is Mr. Jake Bishop. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely, man. If If you wouldn't mind, maybe we could just jump right in. You can tell us a little bit more about you. I'm all warmed up now. Okay. Yeah. I was going to thank you, Amanda. Um, thanks for uh, doing this interview as well. I know uh, having a guest host, I, I'm hoping you can throw me some good questions on there. I won't be ready for it. I got you. <laughs> so my name is Jake Bishop. I've been in recovery for three years. I work at Baden Street Settlement in Rochester, New York. I also host Rising Up Recovery on 100.9 WXIR. So we speak to healthcare workers, uh, former substance users, politicians, and a lot of community activists about healthcare, addiction, recovery. And we do it every week. And slowly we started to expand into some other community events. And we've been very blessed to be able to put a meeting together actually this week with a lot of community members and leaders who are going to be uh, changing our nonprofit board so we can start making some sober living housing in Rochester, New York. Oh, that's awesome, man. It's always good to, to hear about people that are on the front lines that are out there doing the work and and being involved with the community. That's it's awesome, man. Yeah, being at Baden Street now, Baden Street Settlement, they hired me because somebody on their staff was listening to my radio show and I had just said, Hey, I'm a certified peer now. I'm you know looking to be able to help out in some sort of way. And they contacted me via Facebook, like so many of these connections we make. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm working for them as a care manager, uh, organizing people's mm-hmm. contact with providers, scheduling any sort of appointments they have. And it's been, uh, I got to say, some of these people are pretty stubborn I work with because I remember being in recovery like that. So it makes it that much uh, harder to work with. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear more about the radio show, how you got involved with that. Is, is that <laughs> something that you've, were you in, were you in radio and broadcast before you found recovery? What is that whole, how did that play out? God, no, I was, <laughs> I think, I think everybody had mentioned something about, Hey, listen, I think, uh, you know, you might be interested in doing something in entertainment one day, of course, uh, mixed in with a lot of arrests for trafficking and distribution and a lot of other uh, drug arrests. Um, I found myself in my first few months of recovery. I had just had another DWI and uh, it led me to a point where I was, I got a canine unit on my leg. 
I went to the hospital, was arrested. I sat down and I thought I'm going to go back to court. And it was in front of the same judge I had seen 10 years before hmm. for my other DWI. And as you know, judges <laughs> are not happy to be woken up on a Sunday morning and especially not to see the same guy that they told if they ever see you in my courtroom again. And uh, so I took that time to reflect and I went back to the gym. Um, I always, I always try to take care of myself and weightlift and everything, but I did it almost every single day. I went one, two times, three times. I got a dog, ironically, a German shepherd <laughs> from a shelter. And we had a, you know, we had this sort of understanding, like, I'm going to take you out every single time I feel like using. So this poor dog probably went out for five miles a day because I felt like I have to use a lot. And I went to a festival and they had recovery related services there. And I spoke to a gentleman that I was very familiar with uh, was Tony Gingello. And uh, Tony was um, a known, I would say, how do you, he was known to be part of a, an Italian American subculture. And uh, his uncle was actually blown up by a car bomb in Rochester uh, about 30 years ago. So I looked at him and he said, Hey, I've got a radio show. I've changed my life a little bit. And I'd really be interested in being able to have you come on just as a guest and talk about your story. And as soon as, as soon as I went on, I was nervous, but I felt comfortable. I felt like for a moment I was in control again, all that excitement, all that, all that terror of knowing what the next day of recovery was going to be like, and still having a criminal case above my head. Uh, I said, Hey, I think I might be able to get somebody else. And he said, well, perfect, Jake. He's, he's got a very deep voice. Jake, I got I to gotta tell you, you got to come on again. You got to come on the show. And I said, let me get um, the mayor of this town, Robert Corby. And he was a Pittsburgh mayor of a very nice suburb here in Rochester. And he came on the show and we talked about addiction. He said, you know, there's a lot of people in recovery in the suburbs. There's a lot of overdoses that people think it's only in the city. It's only based on minorities. And that opened the doors for us to be able to speak with um, people like Senator Jeremy Cooney, who legalized marijuana in the past year, uh, Assemblyman Harry Bronson, and not a lot of great healthcare workers and former substance users that were willing to share their story and talk about some of the things that had got them to through the recovery. Uh, I We started off in a small little radio studio where as soon as you touched any of the boards, you could tell the wires were hot uh, or it felt like it was about to light up in flames if you touched the wrong button. <laughs> and we upgrade. We had to upgrade. We got a good upgrade through um, a studio at Extreme Radio. It's 100.9 WXIR, and Extreme Radio is across the country. But they have a studio here in Rochester that uh, they've generously allowed us to use, and we've got sponsorships. And uh, it, it took us. It took us about a year before we got in there. But the past two years, all our shows have been out of there. They've got great capacity they've, to have guests from out of state because obviously. During COVID, that was a big hurdle for everybody. I couldn't have anybody come in. Um, if you did, you had to wear a hazmat suit or you had to be careful of shaking people's hands. It was limited to one person. And uh, so I got to talk to a lot of people outside of, of Rochester. And then it started to become people outside of the country. And uh, I think that's kind of the direction that we're going into right now with Rise Up Recovery. We're not just expand, we're expanding with local people. But we're also trying to get into a network where we can speak to people across the country. That's awesome, man. And I love 
just the the story of you guys starting in that little tiny studio with terrible equipment and just i mean i feel like with all of our stories man like starting from the bottom and like working our way up and and finding our voice and finding our niche to be able to give back to the recovery community uh, a few minutes ago randy was randy beard posted um about using any and all platforms to educate and i think that that's so important for us to, to use our voices and whatever our gifts may be i don't really i never thought that i would be doing something like this you know i'm i'm the kind of guy that likes to be behind the camera or the one like at the board <laughs> i'm not the one that likes to be in front of the camera or behind the mic um and it feels like it just kind of fell into place that i am where i you, am today you look like you're in like joe rogan's studio right now so that may be it, yeah it, it, sometimes it feels like that and, and hopefully i'll start getting those joe rogan paychecks one day um but for now this is just something i do in my free time <laughs> but that's but, that's another thing about recovery it's always a lot of free time for us to be able to do what we you know we want to do for other people uh in these group support groups absolutely and JR is requesting that I find that I put the link for your show on the chat. So give me just a minute, JR. I'm trying to multitask here, man. So Jake, if you don't mind me stepping in, um, do you think that like the radio show, um, has that like been kind of like a blessing to help you stay sober? You know how they say like meetings, you need to be like participate and be active. Would you say that like the radio has kind of given you a little more of like a oomph into the like community. You know, I, for me, there was two, there was two parts to it. One was my life before recovery was um, linked very into, you know, criminal exploits. You know, I was in 2015, I was charged with trafficking distribution of 133 pounds of marijuana. And it's, for, you know, having that connotation, having that reputation followed me. So being able to cleanse myself by being able to speak publicly about recovery made me accountable. It made me feel like I made a mistake, but I want people to see that I'm at least I'm trying to build back, you know, day by day, one hour at a time with one guest a week. But for that moment, it, it made me think, I'm like, well, I'm doing something to serve back from what I took in Rochester. And mm -hmm. even if it takes me my whole life, I'd be prepared to pay that debt back. And uh, it was cathartic. It did feel like I was, I didn't get into AA. I didn't get into NA, uh, but I wanted to expand on that. In fact, one of the blessings about this is I've been able to turn Rise of Recovery from just a radio show and move that into a direction where we can have community events. In the past couple of years, we've had giveaways. You know, we put out, you know, hundreds of coats, uh, we have turkey giveaways, holidays. We go down in Joseph Avenue, which is a, a hit very hard right now by a lot of crime. You know, last year we broke record over almost 100 people murdered and shootings. Yeah, it's a ter it's a terrible location for for the murders. But having that opportunity to be able to serve the, the public and work with partners, and uh, unfortunately, my you know my uh, the founder Tony Gingella passed away unexpectedly this year from a blood clot. So, you know, being able to take over the mantle and, and speak to the news about, you know, how I would like to carry on his legacy is, has been a big part of my recovery. And sometimes I don't know if I would still be, you know, this far in recovery without being able to speak on the radio. 
I bet it um, it helps with your lived experience as well, because I know, like, so I'm four years sober, and I just now started sharing my story in the last, like, few months, and it makes it so much easier, I think. Um, of course, I would still, I'm very much into being loud and recovering loudly, because um, I believe silence kills, um, but going on like, you know, recovery revolution or a page like that with other like-minded people who I know aren't judging and knowing that like your radio show, you know, that it's going to one person might hear one thing and they trust you more because they, or I know I would trust the situation more knowing that you've been through your lived experience, you know, is something that only you're going to understand. So you're not going to try to understand what I'm saying, you know, put yourself in my position because we can't all of our walks and journeys are different. Um, so I think it's awesome that you are taking, yes, you did, you did wrong. That's what addiction does. We, we make bad choices. We embarrass ourselves, our family, our friends, our community, but you giving back in the way that you are is so powerful because not only are you giving back, not only are you helping the people and inspiring people with your story and them sharing theirs, but you're also bringing so much awareness to your community and, and furthermore, you know, outward of the community by giving people a platform and a safe place to come and just meeting them where they are and, and sharing. That's a great sentiment and that's absolutely true. Uh, being able to, to talk to people who have been afflicted by addiction or trauma. One of the other things I like to bring up is recovery to our radio show, to our mission is not just about, you know, cocaine drinking. It's also about recovering from sort of traumas. I've had the privilege of working with human trafficking court in Rochester. In fact, a lot of my clients and care manager at Baden street that I work with were through human trafficking have, or people that have had sexual assaults. And so in that to me has meant that I can share resources places like the Center for Youth that help homeless teens in Rochester, people with 30 years experience who have seen that there's been an uptick in sex trafficking of children in the past five years, more than they've seen in the past 20 years uh, with the exploitation. So it gives me a great honor and a privilege to be able to tell people it's okay to share your story in a safe place, in a comfortable place. I haven't been through what you've been through, but if I had a guest that shared her story or their story. And then I have another one I can say, hey, listen, we're building on the strengths of everybody that's spoken before you. And now you've set a precedent where people could speak freely and be open without being judged. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe mental health, you know, um, you know, awareness month. Um, I think it's a perfect time for you to be on because you are, you are hitting on so much, um, like Randy just said, it all stems from some sort of mental health issues. Most of us have multiples. Um, mm -hmm. It's so true. Trauma, domestic violence, um, survivor's guilt. I mean, you know, it, it's you working the problem is amazing and it's, it's a huge step, but if you only work one problem and you don't investigate why that problem built so you know addiction built so so terribly and quickly and spiraled there's always going to be something underlying and we can we can start to to try to solve the addiction problem but 
depression, anxiety, especially social anxiety, um, you know, that, that going out on the town, just like having to <laughs> feel something, you know, I, I've got to have this. If I'm going to go party, I've got to have this. And Charleston, when JR was at our event, um, I work for Wake Up Carolina and we just had a silent auction for our five year like celebration. And we were raising money for treatment facilities, scholarships, detox, you know, harm reduction, Narcan, all that. And it was a non-alcoholic, um, a non-alcoholic event. So we had mocktails instead of cocktails and we named them, you know, like cute little sober names. Um, and it was amazing to hear so many people that said, wow, look at all these sober people having a blast with no alcohol. And social anxiety is such a big form to me of mental illness, mental health, um, because that's what I feel like a lot of the younger adults too. It's that's the beginning of the problem. You drink, you let your guard down, you might use, and then you've got something to prove and it builds or, you know, some drugs are just automatically on it. Um, so I think it's amazing that you're touching on, and like Randy said, I want to throw in PTSD because that is a huge, huge, huge thing. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I've talked to JR about, um, I have no, you know, military affiliation or, you know, I've never been, um, but I feel obviously so highly of our, um, anybody in the military veterans. And unfortunately, you know, I can't reach them as closely because I don't have the lived experience, but it is, we really need to work on more mental health than it lately seems like we have been. So I'll stop rambling. I just wanted to you know, give you the shout out for being so awesome. Thanks, Amanda. That was actually the first, uh, my first client that I lost to an overdose at Baden Street was a veteran. And uh, we have a place, the Civic Center, and it's known as a place, it's a heated garage. People go in there, It you know, try to speak with them. They have advocates come out all the time, but some people are very comfortable staying there. And uh, he was in the army, he came out, we, he didn't have an honorable discharge, but it, it wasn't a dishonorable discharge. I had a wonderful intern at the time who was in the military as a combat medic who did two tours. And we were able to get him into some place. We called him. We said, hey, listen, I've got the key literally to you walking into a new life. I, uh, Jake will be out there to see you soon. We're going to get you organized, get you a couple outfits. He was, he was like, no, I, I'm, I'm good. And uh, you know, we tried to get him in again to recovery. And, uh, you know, later I got the phone call that he was found at the Civic Center. He had overdosed uh, in a garage behind somebody's car, you know. So I took that very personally. And that's one of the reasons why I want to give a shout out to The Mission Continues uh, with Jeff Messinger here in Rochester, New York. Um, he asked me to be on the board to be able to serve and help. And Mission Continues helps out. Uh, veterans who say, I want to still have the camaraderie. I still want to have the service to my country, but I'd like to do it through community service. And uh, they've expanded here in Rochester into a network of veterans who and non-veterans like myself uh, who feel like they, they really want to keep sharing that service to everybody. And uh, I want to thank them. Oh, thanks, man. You're welcome. Uh, it makes me because I don't want to feel like you're reading my mind. Care, careful. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I try to be quick on the keys. <laughs> that's why. That's why JR pays me the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
And I also feel like, um, you know, it's so funny that we have never met Amanda and something as organic as a mocktail event is something that we did here in Rochester and had, it was, in fact, it was going to be a sober bar. My you know, partner and I, we just said, Hey, listen, we know we can make some good drinks. We know that there's something there. Let's test the waters a little bit and see if we can do um, uh, uh, East Avenue. It's a stretch of bars. Let's see if we can get people to stop for one to two hours and use all the money that they make from that time into charity. But we'll see if people can serve. And it worked. And COVID hit. And and we lost, we lost the enthusiasm, the excitement in that moment to be able to do it. But I think it's so funny. You guys have the same kind of stuff going on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing because um, there's so many people that just they don't believe that you can have, um, you know, and we had so many people like donate um, like Jr. Um, like I said, he was there and they, we had like a huge like liquid death, um, like donated a bunch of drinks and we had cookies with our emblems on it. We had um, a, re- a guy named Hank and he's in recovery and he, you know, he came in and he did all of our like band and music. Um, our community is really, um, amazing at, at really rallying together and JR, I have to just throw his name out again. Cause he is so wonderful at, um, like picking people from any, like, you know, putting everybody together, um, and really like building it. He's very supportive, um, of, of every community, um, any kind of recovery, anything based like that. So it was a really cool thing. Um, people were shocked. I mean, they were floored. And we have a couple bars downtown that are um, are starting that. That are, uh, I think we have one, I want to say, they haven't given an actual release date. But I think in the near future, um, they're going to be opening. And it's a complete sober bar. Um, yeah. And I'm stoked because I've never, and I'll say, quote, had a drinking problem. But um, I don't put myself in the position because I don't, you know, one drink could, you know, mess my head up and then I could make a bad decision. Um, that's just my personal lived experience. That's nothing about anybody else's way that they recover just personally. So I'm really excited to be able to like engage in like socializing because we've talked JR and I that we need a bigger like sober scene. You know, we there's a lot of us. And we isolate. It's so normal for us to just isolate, 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 um, be ashamed or, you know, whatever, kind of be left out of events because there's alcohol or whatnot. So I'm excited to experience it. It sounds great. And I'm glad that people are finding out that a mocktail is not just Sprite with a little bit of club soda and some maraschino juice. Because I I know we had gone through some phases of drinks and I'm like, I'm not going to get a hangover, but I'm definitely going to have diabetes by the time I finish this drink. <laughs> and uh, I also, I was also going to say, uh, I got to thank, uh, thank Jr. for uh, sharing his book too. That's uh, that was very interesting read, and I'm glad that I could share it now with other clients too. Yeah. I know he's what, got like, mind- uh, arachnophobia right now, or whatever bite he had going. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you mind me asking a little more about, are you comfortable talking about your like active addiction and what you like kind of your journey through active addiction into sobriety? No, no, of course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd love to. 
we uh yeah i started off I, I was about 13 years old i was down with family uh in nantucket and i think i knew i had a, a drinking problem when i was given you know your, your family gives you a little bit of cash to go shopping or whatever and i used my money for a flask i was like oh this this is very this is sophisticated i'm sure this means my uh drinking will look cool and uh i did i bought a little flask and at 13 i was going into school with my you know little flask filled with i mean it was thinking back how horrible it was now i would mix in vodka with whiskey with wine bailey's cream whatever i could mix in so it didn't look like everything was being drank all at one time and uh it, then it became like a beer before school i would drink warm beer guzzle it down and uh about the age of 15 that's when i started cocaine I was at some hotel parking lot. I was selling weed with a couple of friends of mine and they introduced me to Coke and they said, Jake, this is, this might be a big thing for us. If we can get people, you know, get you out there and talk to people. But, and I was like, Oh my God. I was like, wow, we should just do this all the time. And I did. So it was, you know, my, my marijuana selling became cocaine. And then by the time I was 15, 16, 17, I, I was still selling a lot of uh, drugs. Uh, I dropped out of high school in my senior year, and uh, I kind of got into petty crimes. I've, you know, I was, you know, stealing, going out with friends. I had a group of guys that were with me that I, I, you know, we all got arrested together at some point. And uh, at 18 years old, I got charged with a DWI. I got charged with, uh, you know, the attempted. Assaults on cops, but there was a few of the other ones with attempted robberies, and uh, it was all based around the drugs. You know, I, I couldn't. There was not one moment that I could not go out, have a good time, by just having one drink. Everything opened the doors for me to for cocaine. And by my twenty years old to twenty five, that's when I started getting into bigger stuff with, you know, you know, pounds of pot up to hundreds of pounds of pot up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I got arrested in South Dakota on my way back. And I think all those times that I was in jail were the only times I just did not use. <laughs> and then it got worse because I went down to St. Louis and I was working for the Iron Workers Union for the boss of the Iron Workers. And uh, his name's Charles Marnotti. And uh, in St. Louis, I guess the big thing, I mean, it was just one night. It was the, I, would, I had a town car because I was his driver in Little Italy. And I remember I, I, I would take his, I would go from uh, the laborers union, then to my other job at Cafe, at this uh, Cafe Napoli place in St. Louis. And uh, I couldn't get my dealer. I couldn't get my dealer to get me Coke. He was like, listen, I'm Jake. I'm not going to be able to get there till 11. I'm thinking it's nine o'clock. I got to go to work. I need something to, to be professional. And I had a roommate at the time that smoked crack cocaine. And I always thought, <laughs> look at this drug addict. He doesn't like, he just wastes his time. And uh, I thought, well, I've had two giant Cadillac uh, mojito tequila mixer drinks. So I went and I tried crack cocaine for the first time. And I don't think I did it again for another two weeks. And then I was, I got drunk again. I ran out of regular Coke and I got heavy into crack. Uh, I was getting big checks and I was spending almost a thousand dollars at a time, burning through it. In a, you know, in a day, and then I left, and I I got another arrest, assaults on officers in St. Louis, and came up to Rochester, and 
uh, I found out that a good friend of mine who I had introduced to cocaine had a crack addiction. And so it got even worse. I was like, well, I said, why don't we do it together? That way it's, you know, we can put our money and that turned into full-blown addiction. And at some point I just got myself, you know, as soon as the same time that I, I got a dog, I got myself cleaned up. I just exercised a lot. And I, I don't know. It was just a lot of determination, but you know, I want to say that he's actually in recovery now as well. And he's got a great job at a, at the, one of the best brokerages in New York. So it did work out for him. Yeah. Awesome. So would you, I feel like I'm taking over and I'm not giving Brett any time to say anything. No, go ahead. No, you're totally um, fine. Okay. Um, just tell me to hush if I need to. Um, <laughs> so do you, would you say that you believe that you, people say like you have to change people, places, and things, all three, you can't change one and long-term success, which there's always, you know, an exception, but would you say that it's important to change people, places, and things when trying to, you know, get like into recovery and sobriety? I would say, see, my circle of people was always very small. And, you know, they always say there's no geographical solution to an emotional problem. My mine was, Hey, listen, I could find drugs almost anywhere. Uh, but changing the people, yeah, I mean, it was a mindset. I was always in restaurants, restaurant business. Um, so that was kind of that was kind of my social group. And of course, when you're in the social group with a lot of people in restaurants, there's a lot of drugs around, a lot of drinking. So removing myself from that. But the one thing I was not comfortable with was being by myself. Whether it was because of ADHD or something else, it was very hard for me to manage my time on my own. It was heartbreaking to actually have to think that I might have to be independent and take care of things and influence, you know, good things in my life without anybody else's help. But yeah, I would, I would kind of agree with that sentiment that you know, the places, I mean, I, sometimes you have to have nobody around because you realize that you're the unhealthy source of whatever's going on, introducing people to drugs, getting them to get into crime. Yeah. I definitely agree with that sentiment. What about your look on police, like law enforcement now? Obviously, you know, when we're using, we're not going to have the best outlook. Um, <laughs> you know, duh, right? Uh, so what about now? Do you, do you think, I mean, obviously, your relationship, I'm assuming, with the law enforcement has changed. Uh, yeah, ab absolutely. I think, <laughs> I'll be very honest, I don't think there's a time I was ever pulled over that I did not get an assault on an officer. Uh, I think in the past 17 arrests that I had, uh, six of them included assaults on officers. And in fact, I went as far as to get a silence tattoo on my neck before I went to court because I, I wanted to make sure that you know people understood. I don't contact the law. I don't speak with the law. I have no respect for them. Uh, my family, we had a disregard for police officers, we were sort of trained, instructed. We was learned that we don't trust them. We see them as the opposite. That they, you know, we're on the we run the gamut between each other. They're on the other side of the spectrum. And then I met somebody. Uh, it was an officer who works at the opioid task force. His name's Deputy Mike Favada, and. I wanted to know, I don't think I spoke to a cop since, like willingly since the D.A.R.E. program 
<laughs> and I heard about a friend of mine. Uh, it's okay to share this because he's, he's public about this. Jeremy Marconi, who I went to high school with, and I found out that he had overdosed. And it broke my heart because Jeremy was a brilliant, you know, happy, good-looking guy that had everything going for him in that moment. And I found out that the opioid task force was comprised of an officer, comprised of an officer and a special team that would work with services, work with people, find them. And on Christmas, my buddy overdosed, and Deputy Favada went to the house and said, I'm not here to arrest you. I don't care if you have drugs on you. His family's all Sicilian. They didn't want to have to listen to this, people coming to that. And he said, but I can get you the treatment. Smoke a cigarette, but just talk to me. And he got up to the treatment, and now my buddy is not only in recovery, but he's also in peer engagement, working on becoming a counselor. So that gave me some faith in him. And then I said, you know, forget it. Let's just have Deputy Favada on the show. And he was one of the coolest, nicest guys I've ever met. You know, he's, he's uh, kind. He his, his job, I mean, the way he talks about it was less about talking about the enforcement and arrests and going after addicts. He was talking about it from a, a data, speaking from data, speaking from experience with the people that he's helped and I could tell that it really pained him knowing that there was people that he couldn't save. And so I saw humanity in law enforcement when I had never tried to look. And eventually we had him on again. And uh, I met Laron Singletary, uh, who actually was kind enough to reach out to me from, uh, he was the Rochester City Police Chief. And he said, I'm running for Congress and I'd really like to be able to understand about recovery in your aspect and from your experience. And he came on the show with Deputy Vavada and I learned quite a bit. In fact, it was one of the best things you can do in recovery is to shut up and listen. And that's what I did. I shut up and I listened to cops who have had to go to people's homes and deliver the news that somebody died from an overdose. And I realized that, you know, this might be a job, they might have a badge, but they also have a heart. And that it was it was it was a change in me to be able to understand that, you know, you know, you're no longer my enemy. You know, that maybe we may never be friends, but you definitely lost an enemy and you've got an ally now. So that was uh, that was a big shift in my life. That's amazing. The reason I asked that um, just quickly is because uh, a lot of people I don't think see. So obviously we have bad in every profession just to start my statement off. There's bad police, there's bad doctors, nurses. I mean, there's bad everything, you know, construction workers, iron workers, um, recovery coaches. I mean, there's bad of everything. Um, however, police you know, enforcement, obviously they get a bad rap. Um, and so we, I really believe that helping your community really does start like, like you've done bringing them on your show Mount Pleasant Police Department, um, we, are, we work, we're very close partners with the police um, department in our close, you know, community. And they, you know, for, we do Narcan training at our local police department every month. We have a free yes. Narcan training. Um, and they're like 100% a part of it. I mean, they're there, they're speaking, they're learning, they're, you know, we have, they have like um, donuts with cops where they could mm -hmm. like coffee shops and literally eat donuts and coffee with the community um they have big kid events they go in the SWAT team repels from the school 
um, like, I mean, just, you know, the hospitals for like the cancer, you know, beautiful children um, that are struggling. And so just to speed it up, it really has made a difference in our community that, you know, we, we have, we have laws in place, obviously, and laws need, you know, we need laws, we need rules, it keeps people, you know, for the most part, but they are so much deeper than that. And so you, you really getting to the personal that there, there is a heart behind that badge and humanizing them really does make a difference because with addiction, you know, of course, we're going to, we're going to hate them when they're arresting us. We don't want to go to jail. <laughs> so it's, that's a really, uh, it's a really cool thing that you brought them on. And I'm really glad you experienced that and it made it, other people experience it by bringing him on. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. That being said, if I'm before we stop and I have the chance to cut off the cop, I'm still doing it. I'm, I'm going to take it. Go for it. <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> Brett, do you have anything to say? Do you want me to just keep talking? Oh, if you're you're on a roll, I'm going to let you keep talking. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay, so Jake, harm reduction. How do you feel harm reduction plays and our numbers are, you know, how do you feel about the overdose rates? Do you know, have you like seen the numbers? Do you feel like they've doubled, tripled? You know, it, it's funny. I, I guess when I, I started at Baden Street, you know, I knew I was gonna be working in the city in Rochester. I don't know if I just had the expectation that it would just be like panic at Needle Park and everybody was just having, you know, people were just you know, overdosing over each other. And then I saw that a lot of the problems that we're facing are, are overdoses, but I see a lot of K2, people getting hospitalized for K2. It's, it's rampant here at, on a lot of corner stores, and I've seen a lot of people uh, get very sick from doing it. As far as harm reduction and overdoses, uh, I think part of me was always concerned that having safe injection sites you know, might... Uh, I, for some reason, I always thought that it was, it was better just to get into chemical dependency and having those clinics open for people to have safe injections was wrong. But it's very recently that it's been, uh, you know, research and listening to people, how I've seen how that is a very valuable tool. And it's a great strategy because when you find out that the overdose rate at, at a in safe injection site is 0%, you can't argue with the data. It, it makes sense to be able to have harm reduction in that sense. I, you know, I'd like to be able to see, I'd like to see a, a shift in the, in the programs for school to be able to reduce the amount of overdoses as well. I mean, you know, the police have already said that their program didn't work. If anything, it influenced it in a negative way on the behavior of kids with drugs, but I feel like there's more opportunities and I, and, exploratory visions of what people could make for school for kids, especially in the next five years. You're absolutely right. We're, we're seeing a lot of um, pushback for, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are very focused on high school and we should be, we need to be focused on high school, college, uh, but we're seeing numbers in middle school. I mean, and the education and the awareness starts in elementary school, you know, um, like I said, I'm four years sober and um, I lost my husband to addiction and my kids, you know, they, they're about to turn 12 next week and eight. And 
you know, they witnessed a lot of things. And although, again, you would think that that would make you go the other way and not, you know, use or it would teach them. Um, I'm very open. I carry Narcan. Um, I teach, Nar I train Narcan. That's part of my job is harm reduction, HIV, Hep C, um, like program assistant type, like testing, um, peer support, you know, any kind of Narcan training. So I'm heavily into, I think everybody should have Narcan. And so we're really trying to get into the schools, middle school, high school and up. And we're seeing so, so, so much pushback. They don't want to admit that it's a problem. They don't want to admit it and let us in. And we've had a couple breakthroughs. Um, Nancy Shipman, our executive director and our Creighton's house, which is our young adults um, outreach coordinator, Taylor, they have gone to Wando, our popular high school, and they've spoke and um, they've really brought a lot of awareness and help people. But I 100% agree that we 100, 150%, we need to get into these, like JR just said, early education programs in schools, because that's, that's our future. I, I uh, think one of the most important pieces of, of being part of Rising Recovery is being able to do research and find out what works, what doesn't work in other areas. And, and I'm jumping way far ahead. I'm sure my uh, everybody on the board for Rise of Recovery is already like, Jake, don't push it. But, <laughs> you know, as far as sober living housing, that's something that I, I want in my community. The second thing I want is I want a recovery high school. I want a place where students who are in recovery or facing addiction have struggles, including traumas, can go. There's over 50 recovery high schools in the country. Some of them are run as charter schools. Some of them run through public education. Uh, even if the funding is done for two, four, five people to be in, in a school or 50 people, that's usually, that's the range, about five students, 50 students. That's something that I think that should be in almost every community. I, I can feel it. I, I feel like if you have young people who are strong enough, intelligent enough, and passionate enough to say, I do have a problem with addiction, but I know that it's something I can overcome if you give me some help. And we have a team ready to be able to help them in the system early on like that, I think we're going to be able to have a better future for them. I know that if I, at 15, when I was doing my first line, if I had gone to school the next time and someone said, hey, if you feel like you're struggling with addiction, you feel like this might be controlling a lot of your life. Even if there was a 5% chance I would listen, it would, it would have been worth that. It would have saved a lot of heartbreak for me and a lot of heartbreak for all the people that I, you know, I hurt from that time on. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I don't know if I should admit it, but I didn't even know that there were recovery high schools. Um, that's probably really slack, um, but I didn't. And that's amazing. Um, so we don't have the recovery high school, but at Wake Up Carolina, long story short, our executive director started Wake Up Carolina because her son Creighton died of an overdose in 2016, um, very shortly after treatment, I believe. And Nancy, as his mother, saw a need in the community, a lot of moms, they started a mother's gathering. Husbands started wanting to come. They started a father's group. We have a siblings group once a month virtually. But then 
we saw that there was a huge need for young adults and there's things for adults, you know, I wouldn't even say there's enough for adults and enough options, but there are options, but young adults, especially five years ago, it was, you know, they, they didn't want to say, Oh, I'm going at 14, you know, they didn't want to say, Oh, I'm going to a meeting. Oh, I've got to go to NAAA or whatever. So they named our, our program Creighton's house. So Creighton was her son's mm -hmm. name. And so when the kids would tell somebody, oh, no, I'm going to Creighton's house, it sounded like they were going. And that is the goal is to make them feel and for them to feel that they are coming to a safe place, a friend's house. And they have built that program up to 20, 25 or more young adults every single week. And I'm talking ages like 13 and 14 to like 18 to 21. Um, they have once a month, they have a Creighton's night out. They go and do either movies at the office and like they have pizza every week and they go bowling. Um, we have like a Christmas festival light thing and they go there. I mean, it's really absolutely amazing and it's making a huge difference. So the recovery high school, I really am going to look into cause that's amazing. Yeah, please, yeah, please do. It sounds like you guys have a lot of innovations. Uh, that I will all be stealing by the end of the show to do my <laughs> That's okay. That's what we're here for, right? Friends in recovery. Um, so, oh, yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead. What, how do you feel about all recovery? So, you know, and you got 12 step in AAA. What about MAT treatment? Um, you know, all of the standing on your head, um, you know, whatever. Hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> a lot of what I base, a lot of what I make, a lot of what I do, you know, I'm, I'm stubborn and I think I, I do a lot of it based on what worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, that's I when I, I remember uh, hearing in The Departed, I don't want to be uh, a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. I, I do what I know best for Rising Recovery to be able to, you know, navigate with people I meet in recovery, but I always keep an open mind as, as far as, I mean, you mentioned AA and NA a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. That was, that's something that has never been a part of my recovery. It's never been a part of anything I've done in the past three years. I feel like, um, in honesty, I've had some restrictions with that. I've had a very difficult time being able to break into that community. And uh, even if it was something I was trying to serve or organize, I feel like it was, um, I didn't quite connect. I feel like there was a, a bit of a hierarchy, even in the recovery world about, you know, sharing and, and networking, communicating, you know, I, you know, recovery out loud is amazing and being able to do that. But me being in, and maybe it's honestly just me, because if I go into an AA meeting or an A meeting, I get triggered. There's very few times I'll get triggered. But sitting down and listening to the something, it puts me into a very uh, awkward position where I, I don't function well. But, you know, Matt and stuff like that, absolutely. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so I, I do, I want to take a second because I know people are watching and this is my biggest little quote movement that I want to really um, harp on for a second is all recovery. Um, and that is a very big part of Matt. So um, 
my recovery journey and everybody's is different and I respect all 12 step in AA, but I'm like you 12 step did nothing for me. Now I know a hundred people that it's done amazing for it. Just again, my lived experience, it did not do good for me NA and AA type things. I left feeling worse than I did when I got there. Um, and again, just me, just me. However, Matt, when I started the methadone clinic and when I say I'm four years sober, that was the day that I started the methadone clinic is starting February 1st of 2018. And it did such wonders for me that when my husband was killed three months into my recovery, I was able to stay clean. And there's some strength there. God is an insanely huge support family. I mean, counselors, I mean, you know, on and on, but I truly a hundred percent believe that if I wouldn't have had the methadone and the clinic itself, I, I wouldn't have made it. And I have been shamed for years to not tell my story um, and to not admit that I'm, I'm on mat. And I have a very close friend who I've gotten extremely close with lately. And when we started talking, she told me, um, you know, that she was sober and that her first year was um, on mat treatment. And then I shared my story and she, you know, heard it and I very loud and proud, you know, Matt is recovery ever, you know, any pathways, all pathways, your journey is your journey. I'm just glad you're alive. Um, where there's breath, there's hope, you know, all the things. Absolutely. And so she came, she came back to me and she said, not that she lied, but that my, my lie pretty much like kind of, I guess, spoke in a way to her and that she says that she's, you know, she was a year on, um, Matt, but that the truth is that she's still on Matt. She's just been shamed and not wanted to admit it. And that through me being so loud and so proud and continuously just throwing it, Matt is recovery, Matt's recovery, no shame, no shame, no shame, break the stigma, break the stigma that she felt more comfortable to admit it and speak on it. And that was probably in all the work that I've done in the last year with wake up with against the odds recovery revolution the hope shot was probably one of the most insane amazing moments of my entire life to know that i i took shame away from mm -hmm. her walk um so i i 100 agree with you just because those paths did not work for us for me this path did and it's, it is recovery and it is a path and it's our story and our journey. And it's always going to be different. We support each other. Yeah, absolutely, Amanda. I, having, you know, having the opportunity to speak people about the recovery, what worked for them and also what doesn't work for them. You know, it's a learning experience for me. And, you know, if there's anything I want people to take away from rising up recovery with what we're, pursuing what we're looking for for sober living to be able to hire peer engagement specialists to be able to work in our, in our facilities is that we want to have recovery through service you know deeds not words i want people to feel like they're being a part of something what my recovery i, I know that my recovery became very you know it was at the, the best point or the highest point when it became less about serving me and more about how I could serve someone else's recovery. What what could I do? I'm in a healthy place. What can I do to to give my time 
my experience and my knowledge, as limited as it is in recovery, to be able to guide someone else's efforts, just like people did for me. Because, you know, I, you know, I think about AANA, the times that those were made, the stigma was at the highest. Stigma was, you know, that was, I had somebody compare it to like a speakeasy. You know, you go, you go in and it's, you know, behind closed doors and, you know, you have a network of people that are almost hidden. But, and I've had, and I've got friends in AA and NA. You know, my, my girlfriend, she's been recovering. She's been, been amazing. She's my inspiration for recovery too. But, you know, we, we do clash about that sometimes. And I do think about the, the value of things like Matt, like AA and NA, even Heroin Anonymous. I remember I was in a group for Cocaine Anonymous. I'm like, if it's Cocaine Anonymous, I, you should probably be in there. And it was not what, it was not something that, that worked well with, with my, you know, day-to-day uh, addiction. Absolutely. Brett. <laughs> I'm still here. I know, I know you're here, but do you have, do you want to say, I have like, I have like four questions left. No, go Jake for it. said, Jake said, I hope you got questions and I, I got questions. Man, you're, you're, you're an all-star. I don't even have like a, a pen and paper in here. You know, I, I like that you cut the questions down. I, I very I started off having a lot of questions in my interviews with people early on, and then you know I, I realized I was like sometimes it's, it's a little more flu, you know fluid if you don't have them prepared, and we you, you throw them at the last second. And yeah, uh, I didn't I didn't always like the answers though. <laughs> so far. <laughs> I like him so far. <laughs> I won't tell you though if I don't. <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Um, what is what would you say the top things that helped you get sober and stay sober? I know you said that, like you're a beautiful pup, um, but are there any other in the gym? Any other things that you know just for people listening if they're starting their journey? Yes. Being humble, that was not a strength of mine. Um, Geez, maybe that's why I wasn't so into (laughs) some of those support groups, because you only have to be humble. (laughs) And I found that in my recovery, I have to understand that, you know, sometimes you don't have to surrender. Sometimes you have, you know, you don't, you don't surrender because of something you find, like you find the strength. You know, there was a there was a time I've got a beautiful canal behind my uh, behind my townhouse, and sometimes I would walk along that canal, and I thought, I don't, I'm depressed, I've been arrested so many times, I'm most likely going back to prison. Um, you know, I did cupcake time like two years, and uh, and I would walk along that canal, and sometimes it was like, it felt like my feet weighed a hundred pounds. <laughs> you know, that next step just to be able to walk. And I started doing that because I got told by this guy, Robert Veter, amazing counselor. Uh, I'll send you guys his information. He's incredible. He told me, he said, you know, it's 15 minutes for every craving. So I was like, (laughs) well, I'll go out for a 30 minute walk and I'll come, I'll go all the way around. And I got to tell you, there were some times on that canal that I felt like I could have walked into the water and just disappeared. I felt like I could just melt away because, you know, maybe it was suicidal, maybe it was depression, but, you know, in those moments, I, I said that next step, getting around, 
finding something else, going to the gym, whatever it was. So, you know, you know I guess finding that, finding that strength in every moment that you take and realizing what your potential could be and what you want your potential to be when you are in recovery. I walked my dog. I took her out. I went to the gym. I organized my time. I found community service. I wanted to be of use. I, I think so many times that people early in the recovery, that's like, what can I do for me? Can I go to here? Can I go, can I do this? And for me, my, my focus was, I don't, I'm not good with myself. What can I do to be around other people, but be of service to them? So I, if I could recommend anything, it would be find your strength, imagine what your potential could be, get some hobbies that are healthy and, and, and try to be around people who are like-minded or even not like-minded. There's, there's tons of people that I don't agree with sometimes. Uh, my best friend, I can't stand him. But, but we, <laughs> Danny Hefner, if you're listening, I hate you. But, you know, he gives me my best ideas and he's very supportive, supportive through everything. So, you know, those, those would be uh, those would probably the most important things that have got me through my recovery. That's amazing, amazing things. Um, my best friend for years, her name's Ashley, and uh, it said we're the funniest pair because I have done drugs for years and years and years, um, and she's never done any drugs. She's never oh. smoked weed, yeah, like polar opposites. I mean complete off there's just nothing but like complete polar opposites and she's <clears throat> she's the most amazing person obviously i've ever known um not judgmental when she got with her boyfriend she was like he was doing drugs too i knew him um and she's like i said she's an amazing person so he you know that was his inspiration a huge one to get sobered up um and he quit smoking weed and everything. And I remember at that point, she, but she didn't understand addiction. She didn't understand a lot. And she was like, if he smokes weed, I'm leaving him, you know? And I was like, okay, dramatic, dramatic. Um, quit being dramatic, but she didn't understand. And I'm not condoning, nor am I not condoning all pathways, all recovery. I'm good with whatever. Mm -hmm. But for her, it was, it was such a mind like, blowing experience because I'm sitting here going if, if he smokes weed you're leaving him but I'm your best friend <laughs> like what um <laughs> I think she probably had I think she probably hated me qu quite a bit at times um but you know through people who we you know opposites attract and that's for obviously friendships as well because I don't like a lot of the stuff that she says either <laughs> <at all. laughs> Okay. So Brett has to help me on this because oh. JR asked it to me, but I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. So they asked me when I came on, I think he said, what's the, what's the opposite of addiction? Do you believe that the option, the opposite of addiction is connection? Is that right, Brett? You are correct. Yes. You get a ding. Hey, oh. you got the ding. What? You could have had sound effects the whole time. You know? No. I, I try. I try not to use them when we're doing like serious stuff. <laughs> like, banter times. Okay. 
So then, yeah, do you believe that the opposite of addiction is connection? I guess. I mean, I feel like that's a, it's relative. It's the context. I mean, I, you know, there was not a time that I was not around somebody. I, my my entire life, it was either a drink, there was people around. I was always very social. It worked well for traffic distribution because I would meet with people and connect often over drinks, often being very social and connecting with people deeply. I'm not going to lie. When I was, even when I was using, I could still have those moments where you bond with people and read them well. And then I got into recovery and I was like, nah, I hate people. I can't stand. <laughs> I, I, every little thing I was like, dude, breathing too loud. I think one of them made <laughs> eye contact with me. I was like, and I was like, what happened? Am I, is this really, maybe this is me. I, you know, after using drugs for 15 years, it was kind of like, it's kind of like when your car is buried under the snow and you're digging it out and you're trying to make the shape of it to figure out what, you know, how to get in. And I was like, I don't know what I look like anymore. I don't know what my identity is. So talking about the opposite of addiction, connection, um, you know, like, I don't know, I'm connecting with people now. It's a very small amount of people. I network wide, but as far as that connection part, it's, I'd say it's a little more limited than it used to be. So it'd be hard. It's hard for me to answer on that. I I got a phone filled with phone filled with numbers and emails and stuff, but there's only about two or three people I would call to be able to talk to that was meaningful. And, you know, maybe before when I was using, there was a lot more people I could just call in the middle of the day or whatever it is to, to be able to, to talk over things. But um, at least this time I'm not getting arrested after I talk. That is I'm a very good positive. I'm still going to give you the ding. <laughs> hey, you got a ding. Thank you. Um, that question was super hard. When they um, asked me that, I was like, what? Like, hold on, wait, 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 hold on, what? And then I thought about it like I was throwing. I mean, if you look back, I'm sitting there going, uh, that's a hard question. Uh, like it took me a second to be like, um, but so Sphinx over here. It's like, I guess it's like from what, what I gathered from what they were saying. And I guess I get, so we're very social. It seems like for the most part when we're using, um, especially certain substances because you're outgoing, you're numb, you're like, let's do it, you know, <laughs> and then you get sober and it's kind of like we are like secluded. We isolate, um, especially in the beginning. You don't know, you isolate because you don't know where to go that's safe. You don't have a safe place yet. You don't know their shame, their stigma, and you don't know who to trust. And so through working, mm-hmm. through sobriety, building that support you have less people in your phone now but you're connected in such a stronger way than with the addiction crowd i guess you know it's a like you said you're not going to jail it's a it's a positive connection a safe space for you yeah hey two hey 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 hey. okay Uh, that's good that is good Let's see. Okay, biggest gift in recovery or gifts. You can see more than one. I won't limit you to one. Biggest gifts. So, best things I've seen in my life since recovery. Like, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, one would be, <laughs> well, I, I, as much as I love my sweet German Shepherd, Allie, she was a 
beautiful gift, wonderful. Uh, I would I would have to say meeting my uh, girlfriend, uh, Abby. You know, we were working with a mutual client. I was doing care management for her. She had um, this woman had very serious schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, PTSD, rape trauma. I mean everything. And but she was good to work with. She was very pleasant. The the human trafficking court said, "Hey, you'll be a good role model for her to to learn it with men and understand them and be in, so she could feel independent but still rely on you for some for some help." And I went into court, and I saw uh, I saw her as uh, Abby, looking you know beautiful, and you know I introduced myself, and I think I was like, "Well, I'm actually a care manager, Bain Street Settlement," and uh, I saw my client. It was actually it was actually my client who felt so comfortable with her that she put her arms around her and she cried and hugged her, and there was a moment that I saw that there was this humanity. There was this heart and tenderness that I, I recognized. I said, that's something that is, is beautiful. It's a quality in people that maybe you'll never see your entire life where somebody can have that kind of sympathy and understanding when she closed her eyes and she felt safe. And I thought she better be single because, <laughs> because I would really like to be able to talk with her outside of work. So I said, listen, there's a, I'm a kind of a radio personality and I'd really like to be able to pick your brain about being a peer engagement specialist in court. And it, it might be better if we spoke over dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Oh, <laughs> thanks, bro. <Fred. laughs> <laughs> and we fall in love. <laughs> that's, that's a so, really yes, that, beautiful that, story. <laughs> so that would be, uh, that alley, um, forgiving forgiving a lot of people that was that was another gift that was unexpected mm. you know being able to sit somebody and, and understand it and and forgive myself for some things too you know, that was that was all sort of gifts that i didn't even know that nobody tells you what the road recovery is going to look like and who you're going to see along the way they might tell you that it's a fantastic journey uh and it could be labyrinth <laughs> you could be that kind of that journey where you're like oh man this is all wonderful it gets me to the best places but sometimes it's made life so real to me that, you know, being sober and thinking about the stuff that's gone in my life kind of hurts. And, uh, but it's still a gift and I still am grateful for it. Absolutely. So, I was going to jump in because we have a, a question from the audience. Michelle asked, what's the average age kids start using? What age do we start talking? When is too young? When is too late? throw that question to either of you you know i i feel like now with TikTok, social media i feel like an old guy already but when when you have opportunities to be able to introduce the things in a uh, entertaining way kids joke about it smoking weed now it's legal i mean it's it, if you think about it for the first time in new york state from at least for, for us we've got you know marijuana you can have a certain amount of it but the problem is it's hard to compete, you know, as a parent with certain media outlets when they're so easily accessible. And kids are so open nowadays about being able to talk about things. And uh, I think it's, it's a very important thing to say, hey, I've got to, if it's 12 years old, 13 years old, that's, I think that's kind of around the age. I feel like that would be a good time. 
mainly because that's when they're getting into those places where they can actually get their hands on the stuff a little bit easier. Well, and she, she just posted a, a follow-up comment. She said she has a seven-year-old with two addicts, one in prison. She's asking questions. Oh, yeah. That's good yeah. to be able to, you know, for somebody who has, uh, you know, spent some time in prison, has, you know, uh, has a daughter and wishes that it had been able to have that conversation earlier on. Uh, what does it, you know, what does it mean to be able to be addiction? I think it, I think it's hard, to, it's hard for children to be able to actually understand that there's something that's a chemical reaction that's so overwhelming that it, it can put the needs of an addict or their mother or father or whoever it's related to can mean more than love mm. in those moments. It's one of the biggest difficulties I have with some of my, my clients. They have children. I have to go to Child Protective Services. I've got to go to family court every month. And I see sometimes the kids, they, they know that there's something, they know there's something that they don't understand. It's a mystery. Even at 14, 15 years old, there's something, I mean, how could anybody really understand at that age, you know, or parents addicted? Yeah. And it's good to have that conversation. It's, it's good because what you want to do is you want to break that cycle. You want to be able to insert some information and data with love in tandem so that they're comfortable about being able to talk about it. Otherwise, you can either have them get the stigma where they don't want to talk about their parents' re recovery at all, or you get the one, you know, or you get the one where they talk about it, but they attempt to use. Mm. And, and that cycle is something that I get scared of. I look at people and I'm thinking, I've known you for two years now. You just lost your daughter. It happened in a terrible way. Now she's in pain. You're in pain. You guys don't see each other but she knows that there's an easy solution to be able to negate those feelings. And it's how you did it. And that's a terrible kind of guilt and blame. You don't want to ever put on yourself. I want to say too, I, so I have an eight year old and um, so I'm, I'm sure you've heard, you know, I'm four years sober. So she was about four when I got sober. Um, I also have a 12 year old. So she was eight when I got sober. Um, and that was the ages as well, four and eight, when my husband, their father, um, died, which was addiction related. Um, so the talk with them has been very um, hard, very hard. Uh, and because of my work, and I'm very much so on lives, I'm, you know, Narcan training, my jacket says, ask me about Narcan training. So I have a lot of, um, a lot of conversations about addiction. Um, but what I what I realized, especially with parents, is that the biggest thing that my kids needed to know personally, my, my children, is that all the times that I technically chose to go steal stuff to get pills and I brought them to the pill house and got, you know, they would say, mommy, mommy's going to hustle and then going to the country to get blues. So mm -hmm. mommy's going to steal stuff to go to the country and get oxy 30s. That was their way of, of, of telling, you know, what, what I was doing and they were right. So explaining to them that that's wrong and that it's not okay. And that they were loved that even though it's going to seem like, like they weren't loved and that the parents chose addiction over them. It's not that easy of a choice you can love your children as much as anybody sober 
and still mentally not be able to make that decision. You know, I don't believe that you can be addicted and be a wonderful, great parent. I don't know that there's a way to really juggle. You could mm -hmm. be a good one, a loving one, absolutely, a present one. But sure. for me, I don't think I could ever be a good, I don't think I was a good mother until I was sober. Um, and I think being open, yes, and explaining it, you know, they're not going to understand. There's, there's a chemical imbalance and serotonin, dopamine, and, you know, all the receptors, they're not probably going to understand that. But how I explained it to my four-year-old and eight-year-old at the time was that it was like a sickness. It was a different sickness. You know, I was sick and I, you know, I had to go and I had to get help and they helped me and now I'm better. And as they got older, I would let out a little more things. They would see, they went to the clinic with me. Um, but explaining, explaining that it's a sickness and that it's not something that we can just choose, I think is a huge thing so that they don't feel guilt or like they weren't enough or they weren't worthy of love and being chosen over the addiction. Wow. It's powerful. But yeah, I hope, yeah, I hope I, I explained it right. <laughs> I think you did. I think you did. I think you, I think you explained that in the way that, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people would be considering like should i tell a four-year-old about that I, I that was a great way to put it thank you um so i only have two questions left so the one i i you know brett's been absolutely phenomenal and it was best way for people to find your radio show everything online he's been amazing and he's i think posted everything absolutely so just to reiterate if somebody missed the beginning through the comments all of jake's stuff is you know there's links to everything Y'all need to make sure you follow him because, as you can hear, he's amazing. Um, so my last question, see, it's popping up again. Um, <laughs> my last question that I guess I, um, I'll i leave with because we've kind of got into the hopes for the future and what you, you know, want to do. Um, just three pinpoints that you want people to take with them tonight. Three big if, if you only could say three things to reach as many people, bring awareness, all, everything, what would three things be that you would choose? You know, that's the question I ask. <laughs> it's like <laughs> one of the questions I ask people uh, on the show. I, I like to be able to say, what would you like to tell somebody who's suffering from addiction right now? And the number one thing I always hear is you, you're not alone. And I, and it's a, it's a wonderful idea. It's a great opportunity to be able to talk about resources. It, you know, there's there's that feeling of wanting to talk about passion and beautiful words and, and trust and love and finding community and faith. That's wonderful. But it's, it also should mean that you should also not, you should also focus on the resources that are available in the community. You know, if there's a place that, that helps out the chemical dependency, follow it. If you're in your recovery and you're realizing that, you know, maybe you're slipping, you're having a hard time, you know, reach out to those people. I mean, there's, there's professionals just like this, just like it's a disease. There's people there that cure it, depend on them, you know, be humble and, and be able to take that time to, to speak with them. Just like if you would with any other sort of medical problem, I've got a primary care physician that he's been open enough to say, Hey, if anything ever goes on with your, with your medical treatment and you feel uncomfortable, just, just call me, reach out to me, call my office and tell them it's an emergency. 
And uh, so I'd say that get in touch with medical providers, trust in the community with resources. Number two is, you know, find, you know, consider your potential in your recovery. Consider not just people in recovery, because I'm sure there's a lot of wonderful people right now who are not even in recovery, but are still interested in learning about, you know, what we do as far as services. So please, you know, please think about the potential afterwards of what you're capable of. You know, I, I always tell people, I do a mentorship program uh, for young men. And one of the things I always say, think like a leader. If you, you know, be a leader for yourself, but be a leader for others. Ask more of yourself from your recovery. You know, a leader has to think like a philosopher, uh, conquer as a saint, or as an emperor, and, and, and serve as a saint. So try to, you know, take all your best qualities and put them to work for others. If there's anything I can say tonight for people, serve others, you know, help, help in some way in your community, and that will feed you somehow. It will help you. <laughs> I got to get one of those. <laughs> Um, and Michelle, um, I just want to, you know, if, if you need, um, if you need to talk and you need anything, please don't hesitate to uh, send me a message or, or anybody, you know, definitely outsource because like uh, Jake said, you're, you're not alone and it might be a different situation, um, but I've lived it and I've had to explain as a parent, as the, as an addict, uh, so I'm, I'm here for you specifically, and there's a whole, a whole group of community that can wrap love around you and help you with those tough questions and support the children and yourself. You got any other questions, Amanda? No, that was, that was my probably 10 or so. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I enjoyed hearing it. It's very inspiring. Oh, and thanks, Michelle. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, anything else, guys? Are we are we ready to wrap things up for the evening? Uh, I was going to say, if anybody wants a link to what we do in Rochester, New York, over at Baden Street, uh, I know you had the website link up. I'm going to be hosting their town talks uh, every month. So we're going to be able to, it's going to be in June. And we're going to be able to speak with community leaders, politicians, have, have a lot of people come in from uh, different organizations and share what they do. You know, I, one of the best things about being in recovery and doing what I do is I'm a resource broker. I can go over there and I just take that Rolodex and I can just, I know each name for every person I need for what kind of help, um, which really helps, you know, it helps build that, that network that I depend on, you know, every single day for the clients. So um, if you guys ever want to check that out at baitandstreet.org, um, please just click on there. I'm sure there'll be a link. Oh, JR. You <laughs> How about this? How about I, I, you guys will be the first one on our new introduction to the studio. Uh, I know social media, it's got its pluses. It's got a lot of negatives, too. If you miss one mistake or you lose an account or something. So we're restructuring that as soon as we get the website out. Yeah, that'd be awesome. JR has, own, JR has his own recovery Rolodex. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Awesome, guys. Well, Jake, I do appreciate you coming on the show tonight. It was oh, excellent. Man, I appreciate everything you had to say. Amanda, thank you for filling in as a guest host. It's always a pleasure to have you on as well. So thank appreciate you. both of you guys coming on tonight. And Thanks, guys. 
filling in um for anybody that is watching us on youtube be sure to subscribe to the channel turn on your notifications so you know when we go live and if you guys haven't figured it out just yet it's every thursday night so that's uh that's pretty easy to remember uh depending on what time zone you're in i know for me here in the central time zone it starts at seven um so yeah just tune in every week so you can watch us on youtube or on the facebook page if you guys would like to send us voice messages that we can play on the show this is the link to do so speak us slash rrl you can leave uh, i think it's up to like a three minute audio recording and we can play those on the show so if you have questions comments concerns praise and adoration whatever it may be you can leave that for us at that link and um jr had sent me some sober birthdays and i wasn't able to get that video uh put together for the april birthdays but we should have that up and ready by next week so we can celebrate some people that are staying sober out there and let letting other people know that they are staying sober so hopefully by next week i'll have that up and running um i I had so I had a one-year-old that I had to take care of, and I just didn't have enough time to quite get that put together. But we will definitely have that ready for next week. So thank you guys for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Remember, guys, progress, not perfection. <laughs>